I'm James Holman, and this is Please Go On, our weekly podcast in which we go deeper with the author of an important opinion piece for The Washington Post. This week, my guest is fellow columnist Eugene Robinson, who reflects on the legacy of the first African-American Secretary of State. There is a special pride, but also a special burden in being the first black fill-in-the-blank. Colin Powell shouldered that responsibility while giving the impression that the weight was as light as a feather. After Powell's death this week, I wanted to talk more with Gene about how the four-star general kept his balance as he demolished barrier after barrier to reach the pinnacle of America's national security establishment. Here's our conversation. I loved your piece, and you write in it that Powell, who was immunocompromised when he died from complications of COVID, long knew that his obituaries would someday describe him not just as the first African-American Secretary of State, but the first African-American Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the first African-American National Security Advisor to the President. And he was right. That's what all the obituaries say. Can you talk about how he balanced that special pride and special burden, as you put it, of all those firsts? Well, you know, James, he never really showed that burden, Um, but it is a burden. I mean, a, a very, on a much, much smaller scale in my life, I've had occasion to be the, you know, the first black this or the first black that. But he did it on the world stage with literally everyone watching. And it is a balancing act because you're under a kind of scrutiny that is, um, or certainly feels unique and in in some cases burdensome it was amazing to me that he handled that with such grace and uh, equanimity while at the same time always being conscious he knew he was a a black man who uh, did not grow up rich who was not the greatest student in high school who uh, went to City College of New York and and in uh, his reserve officer training, he he found himself, he found his vocation and he rose spectacularly because of his spectacular talent. But there was always always this burden of, of being the first and being judged under a harsh light. One of the things I did was check what somebody else who had been a first on the world stage about the experience. I checked with Eric Holder, the first black attorney general, and uh, um, he quite eloquently described that firstness as being something that was always there and that you just had to, you had to work past. Um, You couldn't ignore it. You couldn't um, uh, uh, you couldn't really forget about it, but you had to work through it and, and, you know, use your intelligence and your training and do what you thought was best in any given situation. And that's what Powell did. Over the years, many politicians have pointed to Colin Powell's rise through the ranks as proof of 
our nation's supposed colorblindness, but you note that Powell was acutely race conscious. Uh, how did Powell manage to push back on people who falsely would cite his ascendancy as somehow proof that racism was over or discrimination was over or that now anyone could achieve any job? It was a balance. On the one hand, he was always very clear that uh, that no, uh, racism was not over, uh, opportunity was not equally distributed, and that the nation had a long way to go. On the other hand, he was the firmest believer in the promise and possibility of America. He was a genuine patriot in that Respect. I mean, it was something that he he believed uh, uh, very deeply. He believed in the military as a sort of conveyor belt into the middle class. It had been that for him. Um, he had a special interest in making sure that you know you can be the first something. Your duty is to make sure you're not the last, right? And so he was uh, he was a, a great mentor. He was an equal opportunity mentor. He didn't just mentor African-American officers. He mentored many officers of all, all shapes and colors. Yeah, not and not just officers and, and obviously not just African-Americans, but we had an op-ed from Condoleezza Rice about how she reached out in, when she was a very junior person to invite her to lunch and how meaningful that was. Exactly. And so he, he felt that was part of his job, but he never sort of lost sight of where he had come from and indeed never lost his interest in trying to uplift African-Americans and other minorities. He, um, he believed that it was possible. And he believed that it not only could happen, but that, that it did happen and needed to happen more. You mentioned you reached out to Eric Holder, the first African-American attorney general, after the news on Monday that Powell had died. You note that Powell played more of an inside game, as you write, less with the firebrand organization like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee than with the smooth, polished, boardroom-friendly National Urban League. Holder, obviously, someone else who's played the inside game very well. Uh, you know, we lost earlier this year Vernon Jordan, someone else who achieved a lot of firsts. And you quote Powell in his memoir saying it was hard for him to sometimes swallow hard under racial provocations. Is this a choice that young, aspirational African-Americans still get forced to make between playing the inside game and the outside game? And in obviously you can see in the 60s that choice, but it, it feels like that still exists today. I think that choice does still exist. And I think people are still make those choices, right? They decide they're, they're going to be activist voices. They're going to sometimes be rude and sometimes be insistent in a way uh, that one can't be in a in a boardroom or in an establishment uh, institution. Um, you know, there wasn't always somebody like Vernon Jordan um, who had had the ear of the president. Uh, that just wasn't, wasn't there, uh, you know, within my lifetime. I want to play a clip from Powell's 1996 headline speech at the Republican National Convention in San Diego, 
which received a bit of a mixed response from the audience in the arena at the time. The Republican Party must always be the party of inclusion. The descendant of a slave or of a struggling minor in Appalachia must be as welcome and must find as much appeal in our party as in any other party or any other American might. It, has a, it is our diversity that has made us strong. Yet our diversity has sadly throughout our history also been the source of discrimination. It's amazing looking back now, uh, I was looking at one of the polls from 1995, how he was beating Bill Clinton in a head-to-head matchup. He obviously did consider running for president, ultimately decided, at least to some degree, that the country wasn't ready for that first, uh, the first African-American president. If Powell would run for president as a Republican in 96, obviously we'll never know what would have happened 25 years later, but what do you think? How do you think that might have played out and and what would it have meant for politics would we be in a in a in a very different world today i I think we would be in a very different different world today because he might well have won now he might not have won he was you know out out polling uh clinton uh in some polls and he was arguably the most popular um you know major potential political figure in the country but he decided that wasn't him he didn't have the sort of fire in the belly to be a, a politician and to and to to do all that was required to to be a successful candidate for president the republican party didn't used to be so outwardly what it is today but obviously a lot of what we're seeing and what trump tapped into in republican politics did exist in the 90s And Powell was able to reconcile himself with that by saying that sort of the country needed two healthy parties, that African-Americans shouldn't be taken for granted. But then he sort of did evolve over time. What did you make of that? Oh, I I certainly think it it showed um, uh, growth and change on his part and also change on the part of the Republican Party. I mean, in many ways, the party left him. He didn't leave the party. Uh, and and indeed, he didn't, uh, to my knowledge, formally declare that he wasn't, couldn't be a Republican any longer until after the January 6th insurrection. I mean, I think he still considered himself um, part of the Republican old guard. He believed in what the party used to stand for. Um, I I think he would have said the best parts of what the party used to stand for. Um, You know, he believed in the American dream. He believed in a in a muscular and strong national defense. He believed in personal responsibility. He believed in, in, in a lot of things that used to be the bedrock principles of the Republican Party. You know, he didn't support John McCain. Um, he was his friend, but he did not support John McCain in, in 2008 because he, he, he saw the um, transformative potential of, uh, of Barack Obama as potentially the first uh, African-American president, and he wasn't going to let that go past. But he never said, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a Republican. It was, that was sort of, a, uh, you know, a, 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 almost a one-off for him. Uh, but then, uh, as the party evolved, when it, you know, came to 
2016 and the rise of Trump. That was just something he couldn't understand. Um, he certainly couldn't uh, countenance, he couldn't tolerate. And uh, I do remember conversations in, in, you know, in, in during the Trump years and in which he just said, I just don't understand this. I don't see what's happening. I don't understand what's happening to my party. It's not the party I joined. We'll be right back after a short break. You won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2009 for your columns about Obama being elected as our first black president. What do you think Obama learned from Powell? I think Obama learned a lot from Powell. I mean, I think I know that Powell was always available to Obama and to um, uh, others in the Obama administration as a resource, uh, as someone to consult either on specific foreign policy questions or, you know, something as, as general as leadership and certainly on matters involving the military. And, you know, and, and he was there to sort of add his, his voice as his views changed. You, you know, for, for example, some people, it hasn't been mentioned a lot, but, you know, he was, um, uh, he didn't want to get rid of, initially get rid of the sort of don't ask, don't tell policy on um, uh, gays in the military. And he had to evolve on that issue. But when he did evolve, and as the policy was changing to let gays and lesbians serve openly in the military, he added his, his voice to support that the the new policy and and that and that was important too because i think it it helped um in some way smooth the way for the new policy inside the military since he's such a such a respected figure to close out our conversation i wanted to talk about that united nations speech in 2003 which powell recognized would also be in all the obituaries and and it has been you write that he gave gravitas and credibility to the false notion that Saddam Hussein had an active program to produce weapons of mass destruction, which set the stage for the disastrous war in Iraq. You cite Powell's handling of such a consequential error in the two decades after as the first rule of being the first black anything. What is that? It's focus on the future and not on the past. You have to move forward, um, and and that's, I think, what he did. And and um, uh, you know, he did regret that that speech. Uh, he deeply regretted that speech, and he felt, and he did did feel somewhat um, lied to and betrayed. He had, if you recall. He had really opposed the whole idea that we were going to invade Iraq, and he enunciated, you know, the pottery barn rule: you you break it, you bought it. Um, told 
President Bush, you're going to be responsible for the lives of 25 million people uh, as soon as uh, you topple Saddam Hussein. And this is not going to, um, uh, you know, this is not going to be a pretty war and it's not going to be a short war. And what's our exit strategy? And he, he didn't like the idea at all. But um, the CIA um, and the intelligence community um, was insistent that you know, that there was a threat, that there was an, a WMD threat. And and he eventually accepted that. And, um, and when, indeed, after the invasion, uh, no weapons of mass destruction were found, uh, he was, um, uh, you know, he, he really um, <laughs> regret is too... too weak a word for what he felt. Um, I, I think remorse is something closer to, to what he felt. But he was not the sort of person uh, to let that paralyze him or depress him. He, he saw it as a, as a hugely consequential error. He, he, he knew the impact that his giving that speech in that venue had in moving public opinion and in sort of, you know, dotting the last I and crossing the last T uh, on the on the way to a war that that others in the administration were determined to have in any event. Um, so maybe it would have happened even if he hadn't given given that that speech. But he he saw it as a as a as a great mistake. But he knew that. We make mistakes, and um, and we make consequential ones, and uh, we can't let that paralyze us um, uh, if we believe that there's still more good that we can do in the world. During a 2008 appearance on Meet the Press, Powell, who had at that point endorsed Obama, condemned the pervasive tone of racism and anti-Muslim bigotry within, at that point, what was his own Republican Party. I'm also troubled by not what Senator McCain says, but what members of the party say. And it is permitted to be said such things as, well, you know that Mr. Obama is a Muslim. Well, the correct answer is he is not a Muslim. He's a Christian. He's always been a Christian. But the really right answer is, what if he is? Is there something wrong with being a Muslim in this country? The answer is no, that's not America. Is there something wrong with some 70-year-old Muslim American kid believing that he or she could be president? Yet I have heard senior members of my own party drop this suggestion. He's a Muslim and he might be associated with terrorists. This is not the way we should be doing it in America. Gene, do you have any thoughts on that? Perhaps that was the beginning of his, of his turn, the <laughs> beginning of his disenchantment with or disillusionment with what uh, the Republican Party was becoming. But it's so reflected his vision of America, the America he had grown up in, the America where, uh, you know, a kid from New York, the son of immigrants, a black kid could grow up and become the national security advisor to the president and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the secretary of state. That's his America. And his America um, was an America in which it didn't matter if someone was a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or a Zoroastrian or whatever whatever faith they followed. Those sorts of religious dif- distinctions ran 
absolutely counter to the to the spirit and meaning, uh, and as he understood it, the practice of our, of our constitutional republic. You could hear in that interview just how how appalled he was and surprised. Uh, and later, uh, you could hear more of the disenchantment. But he was he, he was he was angry that Republicans, people he had respected. Uh, and who he, he felt, believed, understood America the way he understood America, uh, would would say such things uh, and would believe such things about this country that he loved. That might have been the point at which, as I said, the Republican Party left him. He didn't leave the Republican Party. And as you noted, more than a decade later, in the wake of the January 6th insurrection, Powell said formally that he no longer considered himself a member of the Republican Party. Gene, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate this conversation. My pleasure, James. Very happy to have a conversation about a man who was one of the most consequential uh, American lives of the last quarter century. Please Go On is produced and mixed by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Renita Jablonski, and Michael Duffy. Our theme music's by Ted Muldoon. You can find the link to Robinson's column in our show notes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find us. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another episode because there's always more to say.